Good afternoon. I want to add my welcome to that of Mark's at the very beginning of the service. And if you've been visiting for a while and I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I would encourage you to come and greet me at the back door before you leave. I'd really love to learn your name. I might need several repetitions. Uh, my name is Brian, Brian Parks, and I serve as the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. Sick people need a doctor, but if they don't think they're sick, they won't go to a doctor. Sinful people need a Savior, but if they don't think they have a sin problem, they won't look for a Savior. And so, understanding the bad news about our sin sickness is a prerequisite for receiving the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that's found in Him. Of course, it's one of the great deceptions of Satan that it's our sin that blinds us to our need to a saving knowledge of God. The very thing that will doom us on the day of judgment is the thing that keeps us from fleeing that doom. Sin keeps us from seeing the Savior who could save us from our sin. So that sin sickness is, is like a strange sickness that makes us think that we're well. And if there's a doctor who loves us, who keeps telling us that we're sick, and we don't think we're sick, we might eventually actually dislike that doctor, reject that doctor, maybe even hate that doctor. Is it any wonder that we need a sovereign, gracious act of God to first help us see our desperate need so that we can receive His gloriously good solution in Jesus Christ? In our passage today, Jesus tells the Jews the truth about their sin, which is blinding them from seeing who He truly is. We will do well to listen to Him speak to us as well. We're no different than them. Last week, we finished chapter 6 in the Gospel of John, which happened around the time of the Passover. And Jesus, in that chapter miraculously fed thousands of people with very little bread and fish, and then He announced to the crowds who followed Him, I am the bread of life. And when they questioned Him further, He shocked them by announcing that they must eat His flesh and drink His blood in order for them to have eternal life. Jesus was pointing to the fact that He would be the sacrificial Passover lamb and that they must believe in His coming sacrifice on the cross in order to gain eternal life in Him. Eating and drinking Jesus means believing in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But many, including a lot of His disciples, didn't understand Him, and they were deeply offended by Him, by His teachings, and so they turned away. They stopped following Him. At this point, it kind of looks like Jesus' revolution is falling apart. His ministry doesn't seem to be working, at least as viewed from the outside. 
Still, Peter and the 12 disciples, which he chose himself, stayed with him. They told him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. As chapter 7 begins, many days and weeks have passed since the end of chapter 6, and we find Jesus still up in the north in Galilee, and He's resisting a decision to travel down to Judea and to Jerusalem because He knows that the Jewish leaders there are seeking to kill Him, and it's not His time yet. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7, John chapter 7 and we're going to be reading and studying from verse 1 to verse 31. John chapter 7, from verse 1 to verse 31. And as I preach today, I might add that there is a link in our bulletin. If you have trouble following along, if English is a second language for you and I'm difficult to understand for you, the manuscript for my sermon is on the web, and you can download that and follow along with it if you'd like. I don't promise that I'll follow it at every sentence, but I think it'll help you. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, and so His brothers said to Him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of Him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. <clears throat> the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? And yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, 
so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I have come from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to open our eyes. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, help us take in your words to us, knowing that there is no falsehood in you, and you only seek the glory of God the Father who sent you. Lord, we want to do the same. In Christ's name, amen. I want you to see throughout the sermon this afternoon that the world misunderstands and even hates Jesus because of their sin. The world misunderstands and even hates Jesus because of their sin. The sermon is going to have four points this afternoon. I'll repeat them right now, and then I'll repeat them later through the sermon, so if you don't get them now. But this, these will be the four points. Man's evil works, man's law-breaking, man's superficial judgment, and man's ignorance of God. His evil works, his law-breaking, his superficial judgment, and his ignorance of God. The first point in the sermon is Jesus confronts man's evil works, and we see that in verses 1 through 13. So Jesus is still in Galilee, as we read at the very beginning, and it's drawing near to the time of another Jewish feast, the Feast of Booths. Sanjana read to us about that from Leviticus earlier. That feast was a time that God had commanded the Israelites to celebrate each year by building huts or shelters. They're called booths there in that passage in Leviticus. And they built those from palm branches, and then they were commanded for seven days to live in those booths, not in their homes, but out in those booths or those little shelters as a way to remember how their ancestors had lived in the desert as they traveled from Egypt up to the promised land when Moses was leading them. That feast of booths was marked by ceremonies related to water and to light because God had miraculously provided water for the Israelites while they went through the desert, and He had led them by a pillar of fire at night. And later in this 
chapter 7 and then on into 8, Jesus is going to use the ideas of water and light to point out that He is, in fact, the rescuer that God has sent for them if they would only recognize it. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we read of a conversation that takes place between Jesus and His brothers there in Galilee. These were brothers born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus had been born. Now, they they know of His miraculous powers, and they're encouraging Him to go up to Jerusalem. And as they say at the end of verse 4, show yourself to the world. Come on. You can do some amazing stuff, Jesus. Show it. But John tells us that at this point in Jesus' life, even his brothers didn't believe in him. So they believed in, that he could do miracles, but they didn't believe in him. They didn't know that he was the Son of God. These men slept and ate and played and worked with the Son of the living God for 30 years, and they still didn't recognize His divinity. Let this be a warning to us, brothers and sisters, that we can hear the truth of the gospel over and over again. We can grow up in a Christian family with a wonderful Christian heritage, and of course, that is of some advantage. We are perhaps brought to church to hear the gospel and to be taught about what the Bible teaches. But there are no shortcuts to becoming a Christian. You are not born into Christ's faith family until you repent and believe yourself. Now, if there's a young person sitting next to you right now, you might tap them on the shoulder. I'd like to talk to them. Um, listen, those of you who are young, maybe you're a child, maybe you're a teenager, maybe you're someone who's in between. I, I want, I'm talking to you right now. I want to tell you that even if your parents are Christians, you are not a Christian just because your parents are Christians. You need to put your trust and faith in Jesus yourself. That's your decision. And if you hear the sound of my words right now, and you can understand the reasoning that I'm giving to you right now, you're old enough and aware enough to know that you have sin in your life, that you've disobeyed not only your parents, but you've disobeyed Jesus in many, many other ways. And you need a Savior. You need Jesus' forgiveness for you. And you can have it right now. You don't have to grow up to be as old as an adult before you give your life to Christ. I want to encourage you to do that right now. Because just because your last name is Lister doesn't mean that you have the faith that your mom and dad have. Or just because your last name is Matthew doesn't mean that you have the faith that your mom and dad have. So put your faith and trust in Jesus. Do it early in your life. And keep following Him. Keep following Him throughout your teenage years and into your 20s until you die. You can do it now. Put your faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus' brothers wanted Him to go be more public, but Jesus didn't decide to do, uh, he, He decided not to do what they wanted Him to do. 
And he was not deciding what to do at any given time based on polling those people around him. What do you all think I should do? That's not what Jesus said. He didn't crowdsource his plans. He didn't put his finger in the air and see which way the wind was blowing and go that direction. Jesus only acted at the direction of his Father. And so he tells them in verses 6 through 8, my time has not yet come. And now in just a few verses, we're going to see that Jesus does go up to Jerusalem for the feast, but he goes up in private. And so we know that right here in verse 6, the time that he's speaking of here is not the time to go to the cross, but the time to go up to Jerusalem and publicly teach. And more importantly, Jesus is telling them why he's not going up to the feast right now in these verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, it is not his time and the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Of course, that's the point for these verses 1 through 13, man's evil works. Jesus' works and life create a hostile reaction because he's entirely holy and righteous and the world is not. Brothers and sisters, before we knew Christ, our works were entirely evil. Before you became a Christian, you might not have thought your works were evil, but they were. They were evil because your sinful nature was what dictated your actions and your thoughts. Oh, you had freedom but you only had freedom to sin in any which way you wanted. You may have done good or nice things. You may have helped people. You may have been generous. I mean, I'm assuming that most of you weren't murderers. But by God's standards, your works were evil. Nothing was done for the glory of Christ. And if things aren't done for the glory of Christ and in faith, then they're evil their sin. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please Him. And this is not just any faith, not just a generic kind of faith. This is faith, true faith in the gospel of Christ, a depending faith on Jesus. No one likes to hear that they're sinful and unable to please God. To point out the sins of the world, it creates enemies Jesus confronts and calls out our evil works. You know, when I became a Christian at the age of 16, I thought I was a good person. And the reason I thought I was a good person was I, I looked around in my high school and I thought, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. I'm better than him and her. And, and I thought Jesus was really happy to have me on his team. But I was wrong. And it wasn't until some people sat down with me and said, Brian, you are not a true Christian until you recognize that you have sin and that you haven't received what Jesus has done on the cross for anyone who would repent and trust in Him. And you need to do just that. You need to acknowledge your sin. In fact, Brian, you're not better than all those people around you. You're just as bad. You need a Savior. And in God's kindness and grace, 
I recognized that. And, and, and it wasn't because I liked to hear that I was sinful. It was because the Father was drawing me. And He opened my eyes to my sin and at the same time opened my eyes to His grace and mercy. It's never the free gift of forgiveness that turns people away from Jesus. <laughs> That's not what makes people run away. It's telling them that they're lost in their sin. So we're not sharing the whole gospel if we only tell people that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. At the heart of Jesus' message was the bad news that we are evil apart from the saving work of God in our lives. We're not partially good and we just need some minor moral improvements that Jesus can coach us on, you know, give us some tips for better living. No, Jesus said we're evil. We're made in the image of God, of course, but we're twisted and distorted by our sin. We're, it's like looking in one of those funhouse mirrors, you know? It's not, it's you, yes, but it's all distorted and twisted. That's what sin has done to us. We're evil. When you share the gospel, do you announce to people the bad news first? That we're all lost in our sin and in a rebellion to God? If you do, you might find people that become angry and they reject you just like they rejected Jesus. And that's okay. That's okay if it's not you that's personally being offensive. If it's the gospel itself that's offensive to them, then you've been faithful. So don't be surprised when you share a whole gospel with the bad news as well as the good news and people get angry and they walk away. Keep being faithful. Keep praying for them. Some of those people might come back and ask you about Jesus one day. After his brothers left for the feast and at the Father's direction, it was time for Jesus to go up. But he went up privately at first. And verses 11 through 13, they tell us what variety of opinions about Jesus were swirling about among the people. The Jews, which refers to the Jewish leaders, they were looking for him. As John and Jesus tells us, they were seeking to kill him. The people were divided and confused, though. There were a variety of opinions. Verse 12 tells us that they were muttering, which is actually in the Greek the same word as was translated grumbling back in chapter 6. So they were grumbling. Grumbling's not good. And some say that He's a good man, which of course falls far short of who Jesus really was. And others believed He was leading the people astray. But all these conversations were private. They were under the breath kind of conversations, whispers, the back of the room, so that the Jewish leaders wouldn't find out. In verses 14 through 19 then, Jesus finally comes out publicly in the temple and He begins teaching. And first, John recounts Jesus responding to the Jewish leaders. They're, again, called the Jews in our text. They're the ones who are amazed that He knows God's Word so well, even though He's not been formally educated. And in response, Jesus identifies man's law-breaking or their law-breaking in specific 
That's the second point this afternoon, man's law-breaking. Here, Jesus is speaking in the midst of the crowd, but He's specifically responding to the thoughts and private conversations of the Jewish leaders who would have been sprinkled throughout the crowd. It's them that Jesus wants to address specifically here. Now, Jewish teaching, traditional Jewish teaching would always be based on Jewish theologians who came before them. And so, a good Jewish teacher would always cite which Jewish theologian uh, he was quoting or basing his teaching on, as such and such a rabbi said, for example. But Jesus didn't do that, mainly because He's God, but secondarily because His teaching is based on what His Father in heaven reveals to Him. He would say, Just what he says here in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He goes on then to explain how someone can know that his teaching is from God. He says, if their will is aligned with God's will, they'll know Jesus' teaching is God's teaching. They're one and the same. Now, there's a lesson here for us before we come to this main lesson in Jesus' reply about law-breaking. And that's that honest obedience to God's will is one way to get clear spiritual knowledge. Honest obedience. In other words, take steps of obedience and God then often grants more spiritual understanding to us. Far too often we're not focused on obeying, but rather we're sitting back and we're trying to figure out some of the most perplexing mysteries of Scripture when we would help ourselves spiritually by being patient to wait on God to reveal more wisdom and understanding if we would just simply obey Him in the things that are clearly commanded to us, the things that aren't complex and confusing. And so it's spiritually dangerous for us to say to ourselves, I must know everything clearly and then I'm going to act. Instead, God grants more wisdom to those who say, this much is clear, I need to be obedient to God in the simple and clear things and wait for more understanding for Him when He decides to reveal it. Do you see that? how that works? Jesus said after He had taught the parable of the sower in the other Gospels, with the measure you use or with the amount you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, if I teach you spiritual truth, if you use that, if you act on it, more is going to be given to you. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Obey what you know God is commanding, and He'll help you understand more and more of His will in due time. Now, is that a spiritual lesson that you're following now? Or are you stuck waiting to obey God in some aspect of your life simply because you're still puzzling over some mystery in Scripture? And believe me, there's plenty of them. One famous theologian named F.F. Bruce said, if there be a willingness to do the will of God, the capacity for discerning God's message will follow. Obey God today in the simple things. And you'll soon be gifted understanding of the deep and complex things of God. Jesus replies to the leaders' secret conversations by further telling them that they're seeking their own glory and not the glory of 
God the Father. And finally, in verse 19, he drops the hammer on them. Moses gave you the law, but none of you keeps the law. Wow. I mean, Jesus isn't trying to win any popularity contests here, is he? And he spells it out for them. Where are these Jewish leaders breaking the law right now? Well, they're seeking to kill him. They're breaking the sixth commandment as they seek to kill him. Brothers and sisters, I hate to tell you this, but we are just like them. We are lawbreakers too. We could each walk through those ten commandments that we read out loud earlier in the service and see that we've broken every single one of them, at least in our hearts, if not in our actions. Jesus said, of course, if you look on a woman in lust, you've committed adultery. We're all sexual sinners to one degree or another. I've never murdered, but I've hated other people in my heart. I've broken the sixth commandment. And the scripture is clear to break one part of the law is to break the whole thing. There's really only two categories of people, those who have broken God's law and those who haven't. Not those who have broken it a little bit and those who have broken it a medium amount and those who have broken it a lot. No, broken it, period. We're in the first category. Jesus is the only person who fits in the second category. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. As much as I'd like to not be in the same category as those Jewish leaders who are seeking to kill Jesus, I'm afraid we're no different, friends. Can you agree with Jesus? He calls out our law-breaking. And for that, we deserve God's judgment and wrath. Praise be to God for His grace and mercy. How ironic that once we're willing to acknowledge that we're lawbreakers and that we have no righteousness of our own, we're suddenly in a position to receive mercy revealed on the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus. How ironic. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, that's kind of the gospel in a nutshell, in short form. And that couldn't be more true than in the case of a sinner who acknowledges that they're a lawbreaker and deserving of God's punishment. Only then are they ready to receive His mercy. At that point, the crowd who are unaware of the leader's plots to kill Jesus, or at least most of them, speak up. They say, you have a demon! Who's seeking to kill you? Evidently, they're not in on this plan. Now, they may be ignorant, but in their ignorance, they sin by claiming that Jesus, the Son of the living God, the only Holy One of God, has a demon, which couldn't be farther from the truth. But rather than address the crowd in general, (laughs) it's like Jesus is like, I'm not finished talking to those guys who are plotting to kill me. You guys hold on. He continues to speak to the mixed crowd, and his next point to those seeking to kill him is his response, uh, and he corrects their superficial judgment of him. That's the third point this afternoon, and we see that in verses 20 through 24. Jesus corrects man's superficial judgment. 
You've heard the saying, of course, never judge a book by its cover. Well, that's what Jesus is accusing the Jews of here. Only it's not that they're making judgments about whether a person is bad or good based on their appearance. First, they've judged God's law by mere appearances. And so they've completely misunderstood it. Jesus knows that this plan to kill him originated back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the lame man at the pool. And it was on the Sabbath day. And that's why Jesus said to them here in this passage, I did one work and you all marvel at it. He's speaking about that last miracle that he did in Jerusalem, the healing at the pool. And he gives them the perfect example of how they make wrong judgments about God's law. They thought it was fine, of course, to circumcise a male baby on the Sabbath. But they were condemning Jesus for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath. They cut away flesh, Jesus heals a body on the, on the Sabbath, and they accuse Him of breaking the Sabbath? They were supposed to be the experts in God's law, but in fact, they didn't understand God's law correctly. They judged and assessed it by appearances. And if they misjudged God's law, it also explains why they misjudged Jesus, the Son of God, in whom the fullness of God the Father dwelled, and the one who spoke that law to them. And so in judging, they proved that they instead were worthy of something worse than death, God's judgment and wrath. Likewise, we must admit that before coming to faith in Christ and being given the gift of the Holy Spirit, we misunderstood and misjudged God's Word and the Word of God made flesh, Jesus. And even now, we battle indwelling sin as followers of Christ, and it's only when we're walking in step with the Spirit that we can make right judgments about what's right and wrong, about what's good and bad, about what's pure and about what's corrupt. Do you daily seek God's Spirit to help you judge right from wrong? Or... Or are you merely relying on traditions and rules that you've blindly accepted because people gave them to you? This is where a lot of times our cultural background can trip us up. We depend on it rather than on God's Word. All of us have a cultural background that is open to the scrutiny of God's Word, and we should let it scrutinize and walk according to God's Word. I'm not suggesting, of course, that we automatically reject what those who have gone before us in faith teach us, but we must receive what they've taught us or even what I or any other elder in this church, in fact, teaches you with discernment given only by the Spirit of God. You all need to Listen to these sermons with your Bible open and asking God to help you discern. Is Pastor Brian teaching us rightly? If we don't, then we risk taking positions and holding to beliefs that pit us against our Savior and His purposes in the world. J.C. Ryle, who I, maybe you've noticed, quote almost every week now, he's so good. He urged his readers to be discerning in judging or assessing others. He said, 
that far too often we make quick judgments based on appearances and that that can go wrong in two different ways. First, in one case, we might assess someone to be a faithful, good Christian person because of what he phrases, a little outward profession of religion and a decent Sunday formality. He reminds us, all that glitters is not gold. We might be mistaken if we're just looking on the surface. Private character are the true evidence of what a person is. On the other hand, we're often too quick to be deceived by what appears to be evil at first glance. And so sometimes we make too much of a few faults or inconsistencies in people. Ryle, of course, has a catchy phrase to describe those kind of people. He says, the best of men are only men at their very best. In other words, the holiest people are still sinners this side of heaven. And again, we see that we need the Holy Spirit-enabled discernment to judge rightly. Of course, if these Jewish leaders bent on destroying Jesus judged God's law incorrectly, then it only follows that they judged God Himself incorrectly. And that's exactly what they were doing with Jesus. The more He corrected their superficial judgment and identified their law-breaking, the more they were determined to kill Him. Indeed, they were of the world and they hated Him. But a sinful nature also simply creates confusion. And that's what we saw when the crowd accused Jesus of having a demon. And now we see it again in their response to Him in verses 25 through 31. There were, of course, some more common people, not just the Jewish authorities there in His presence, in the crowd, who had somehow learned that the authorities were trying to kill Jesus. And they're the ones who speak up in this last section. And there we hear Jesus declare man's ignorance of God. That's in verses 25 through 31. It's the fourth and final point this afternoon. Jesus declares man's ignorance of God. The group of people that speak up here in this section, they're likely Jews who live in Jerusalem. And so they've heard the gossip about the Jewish authorities wanting to kill Jesus. But they're puzzled because here Jesus is speaking openly in the temple, and yet the authorities are not arresting Him. So based on that, they draw multiple wrong conclusions. <laughs> First, they decide that if He's not been arrested yet, it must be that the authorities maybe have decided that He's really the Christ, and so they're leaving Him alone. But that's not true. They're just being held back by the sovereignty of God from arresting him just yet. Then they make a second wrong conclusion in verse 27 by saying, and you can look there with me, but we know where this man comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They're saying, we know he's from Galilee and we know the scriptures say that the Christ's origin will be a mystery when he comes. Of course, they're wrong about his origin. He had been born in Bethlehem, close to Jerusalem, not up in Galilee. And they were wrong that the Scriptures say no one will know where the Christ come from, comes from. In fact, the Scriptures say that the Christ was going to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus declares that they are ignorant about God, and that is the source of their spiritual blindness about His true identity. They don't know God. Jesus says, He who sent me is true, and Him you do not know. How offensive that would have been to a Jew. 
you don't know God. There are so many people who claim to know God, and yet it's those who know that they're ignorant about God who are in the best position and heart posture to come to know Him in Jesus Christ. To acknowledge your ignorance of God and your alienation from Him is to begin to open yourself to coming to know Him. In most cases, people can be presented with the simple facts about Jesus, His life, His works, His message, and still they don't, they say they don't understand. They need more information. But it's often that it's not a case of needing more information or understanding. It's that they don't want to believe. They don't believe what they do not like to believe. It's willful ignorance. If you're not a Christian, it may be that no one has explained the gospel to you clearly. And I hope that you've heard it here today, and if you keep coming back here, you're going to hear it every week, maybe with some similar wording but from a slightly different angle every week, but you're going to hear it every week in a sermon, in the service, in the songs. We're all born, made in the image of God, but also we're born in sin. We deserve God's wrath and judgment, and yet God in His mercy and His grace sent Christ into the world to live a perfect life and to die an undeserved death on the cross in His crucifixion. He was acting as our substitute when He did that. He was taking our penalty on Himself, though He was sinless and entirely righteous. He rose from the grave and He's ascended into heaven. He's alive today at the right hand of God the Father. We do not have any righteousness of our own, but we can have His righteousness gifted to us by turning away from our sin and trusting in Him and His sacrifice and His kingship over everything and everyone, including ourselves. There it is. That's the gospel. Do you believe this? Have you trusted in Him? Are you willing to turn away from your sin and trust in Him? It may be that you don't need more information, but rather you need to consider whether you want to believe or not. Despite the hostility and controversy that has been growing bigger and bigger in every new chapter of John, and believe me, it's going to keep happening, come back to see more fireworks, Jesus still remains in control of His destiny. We see that in verse 30. They wanted to arrest Him, but no one did because God prevented it. No one laid a hand on Him. His hour had not yet come, the hour of going to the cross. God is in control. Christ is in control. Christ was going to the cross willingly when He went. It was no accident. Even though Jesus had made the most offensive claims about the Jews, their works were evil, they were lawbreakers, they suffered from sin-induced superficial judgment, and ultimately they didn't even know God. Even though Jesus said these things, many people, it says, believed in Him. God was at work in some way, 
Although, brothers and sisters, we don't know what kind of belief this was. Was it true belief? It's hard to tell. What we're reading about right here is a very unique time in history when the Word made flesh was walking among us on the earth. He had not died on the cross. He had not risen from the dead. The gospel had not been preached by His Spirit-filled apostles and followers. Here, like in, it might be that this, these are people are believing like back in chapter 2 when John told us many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing, but Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man. Here, like in chapter 2, it's the signs that have drawn their attention. They see the signs, but do they see where the signs are pointing? They see, but are they still blind to the truth about Jesus? We've seen throughout this chapter the key to their misunderstanding, and in some cases, hatred of Jesus is their sin. Sin keeps you blind even though your eyes are wide open. People who don't think they're sick don't go to the doctor. People who don't think they have a sin problem don't go to Jesus. It feels harsh to listen to Jesus' scathing assessment of how sinful man is, and yet it's surprisingly gracious and kind of Him because it's the truth. He's waiting to give the free gift of healing and wholeness, even to you. He's offering to reconcile us to God if we would simply see our need and come to Him. I hope you have. Let's turn to Him in prayer now. Lord Jesus, we praise You that You spoke truth to us. And You're speaking truth to us even now. And Your Spirit is causing Your Word, though You sit at the right hand of God the Father and not physically in our presence, Your Spirit is causing this Word to touch hearts, to convict, to encourage, to comfort, and ultimately to save. We pray that You would keep doing that in our midst, in this city, in this country, and in this world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Please stand with me and let's sing to this Jesus that we love.